Tonight on This is Vinyl Tap, insect bomber Buddhist droning, flattening clover, Herman Munster, pushing pedals on season cycles. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good night, everybody. This is Doug Cooper, host of This is Vinyl Tap. I'm joined by a co-host, Tony Slagle, and by the extremely, enormously humble Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Hello, Tapsters. Tonight, we're going to take you back. <laughs> the year is 1986. The albums are So by Peter Gabriel, Graceland by Paul Simon, King of America, Elvis Costello, and Life's Rich Pageant by <laughs> R.E.M. I'm sorry, R.E.M. And Bon That's Jovi a, did something, too. It's a great album, by the way. Album. Life's Rich Pageant's a great <laughs> album. Fantastic album. Fantastic. We're going to look at an album from this same period of time. This album is called Sky Larking. It is by the band XTC. The letters, not the word. (laughs) Not the drug. Not the drug. There's a drug called that? Yeah. I forgot. And it's also not the lost chord. Where did they get their name? Oh, yeah. The The lost chord. Jimmy Durant. uh, Jimmy Durant movie. movie. Yep. Anyway, we've... uh, some of y'all might think that uh, Tony picked this one, but this was <laughs> actually picked by Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Jonathan J.M. Rowe, why did you pick this album? Well, glad I, uh, well, glad I'm Doug you asked. Well, <laughs> Doug, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I picked it because I do think it's a very unique album. Um, I think it's one of these that I almost think is unclassifiable. Is it rock? Is it new wave? Is it 60s nostalgia? Um, is it power pop? Is it power pop? Is it jangle pop? Right. What What is it? Um, and it's it's a lot different from, Doug, you mentioned one of the bands, R.E.M. It's it, I would say it's different from anything that they're putting out at this time. Although I think they could argue that they started to go down this route towards the end. And, you know, at this time, there's also all the hair metal bands that, that were kind of going around. And a lot of the stuff that was going on in kind of the alternative universe just really just wasn't on this level, in my opinion. It just really wasn't as inventive. Um, 
And um, are you saying that poison wasn't as inventive? <laughs> well, this is an album I I had heard about this album when it came out, and um, I didn't really start listening to it until the early '90s. And then when I did finally kind of come around to it, I it really stayed on my uh, turntable for a while. Was was this the first um, XTC album you bought or owned? This was the first XTC album I owned. That is correct. Okay. Um, I had I was familiar with them before. I w- I was actually introduced to them on um, in the early '80s when MTV first came out. They had a a song called uh, "Senses Working Overtime." I remember just really liking that song. What's not to like? Yeah, that's a that's a great song, and it just uh, it, it kind of stuck with me. I just I just always remembered that this you know, I was oh XTC is a good band. I really like that song, but it's just it just never really went from there. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you talk about this this album in particular being difficult to classify because I think that's the case with this band in general. In general, yeah. Uh, I think at this time period, they sort of hit a groove where most of the stuff after this is of the same vein. Right. But prior to this album and maybe an EP they put out before this by a pseudonym that they had, they were very hard to classify in terms of their music. Yeah, and I think there's there's some other things about it that just that make it unclassifiable. First of all, it's the singing. The singing's like nothing I've really heard before. It's it's very very British, but then if you actually listen <laughs> to some of the guitar work, it's the guitar work is n- like nothing that was really going on in uh, alternative music at the time. Uh it's not showy, but it it, it is exceptional. Um and then one one other thing I want to say about this album before we really start talking about XTC and the history of this band is this particular album. I think it may not be a, a masterpiece, but I, I do think it's a gem. I mean, it, it I, I don't really know how else to put it, but one of the things that I, the, I was trying to think of, like if I could sum this album up in one word, what's the word that I would, I would use. And the word that kept coming to mind was delicate. And the reason why I use delicate, it's not like um, it's weak or anything. I I just think that the the balance, the way that the songs are crafted, and if if you took one thing out of any song, it's almost like the whole album would collapse. Or if you just even sang a different note or played a different note or something, just something would be off about the album. And there is a cohesion to the album that you don't really see a lot of alternative bands trying at this time. Um, so I, I do think that this album is just very unique and something that was coming out, you know, it doesn't necessarily sound like something from the eighties. Right. And, and, uh, and even though it's, and we'll get to this a little later, a forced cohesion. Yeah. It works really <laughs> well. Um, yeah. It's a, the making of this album is almost as fascinating as the, the album itself. Well, it's what everybody talks about when yeah. they talk about this album and, and the music, unfortunately, sometimes is secondarily, uh, talked about to, um, uh, with that in mind, but yeah. well, you know, we believe that every album tells a story. Well, this, this has one, all right. 
Well, this band has always kind of flown under the radar. Uh, well, especially in the United States. I mean, among college radio fans, it was it was huge. And I I, I think that I eschewed college radio just because I didn't want to be like every other college. You student. missed a lot of good stuff. Uh, no, I missed a lot of good stuff. I I, I was like. I'm not going to listen to the Smiths, you know, I'm not going to listen to the cure. And then, you know, lo and behold, let's say that I'm a carpool mom and I stumbled onto this podcast because I was attracted by the voices of the men and (laughs) gradually became uh, interested in what they were actually talking about. But I don't have the background I need, but I would like to place uh, XTC somewhere in my memory of uh, songs from back in the day. Are there a couple that we know that people have heard before that we could mention at this time? I think probably their, well, actually, what is their biggest hit uh, was in 1989, and it was in the United States, was Mayor of Simpleton. Off of uh, oranges and lemons. Oranges and lemons, which is actually a a double album, but a single CD. It's a double album, and it and the cover of it uh, evokes the yellow submarine. Yeah, when you look at it, uh, it has that artwork to it. So, like like I said, there's a point in time right before the album we're talking about tonight where XTC sort of went down a rabbit hole and they never came back up. <laughs> and well, that album was part of it. And they had another big hit. Uh, Making plans for Nigel. Making plans for Nigel, which was their first big, big hit. That was their first commercial. Uh, was that not larger in America than uh, since it's working overtime? I don't think so. Okay. No, I don't think well, so. I think I'm making never... plans for Nigel never really took off here in the states but that's interesting because it had the name nigel in it it took off in england yeah well you can't have a band with in england without a guy named Nigel. <laughs> tony i have a question for you yeah uh a lot of people say that uh this is the poor man's talking heads oh my i Lord. think you're going to have something to say about that who says that i've never seen These that before. really smart people that have lots of power what do you um, say to them, Tony? Are you going to speak back to power or are you going to cower? No, I won't cower. I, I, it's a stupid statement. How about that? Um, okay, this band was very quirky early on in, in the way that I think Talking Heads were. but And Jam will likely disagree with me when I say this. But what was always underlying what XTC was doing was a tunefulness that I think is missing from a lot of Talking Heads stuff. Um, and what I mean by that is tunefulness and a pop sensibility. Right. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. The the Talking Heads were much more about rhythm. They theater, theater. They they weren't so much about arrangements. They were they were just much more about setting a groove. XTC at, is so much about pop craft. At, at one point, this this will give you a little taste of kind of what they were what they were striving for early on. At one point in their career, Andy Partridge, who is the main songwriter for the band, and I might add, 
one of my favorite vocalists of all time. I love his voice. Uh, he uh, he described them as Captain Beefheart meets the Archies, <laughs> um, which it, their early stuff I think hits that. And they're not anywhere close as weird well, as he Captain was, Beefheart, yeah. but he was a big uh, Troutfish replica fan. Yeah, and, and yeah, I just, uh, and I one of the things that's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who I don't. Sorry, 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 trout fish replica fans. Sorry, I, Jeff. Yeah, I know you're listening. All three of you. Yeah, and you'll be upset by that, but uh, it's well, unlistenable. Well, another thing that's kind of interesting about this band is they came from England. They were like Swindon, I think is the town that they're Swindon, from. Swindon, yes, and. They, which no one cool comes from there. (laughs) Well, and they stayed in Swindon. Yeah, they stayed in Swindon. And, but the thing that is so interesting to me is they weren't influenced. They say they weren't influenced by the Beatles. They were more interested. Their two, Andy Partridge says his two biggest influences at the time when he first started trying to play guitar was the Monkees, the Monkees, and the New York Dolls. Right, right. Uh, the dolls thing I don't quite get, other than the fact that, that they were they were huge in the UK at the time. Well, the monkeys thing I absolutely I, I totally get. get the ga- the monkeys thing. I yeah. think I got an explanation for the New York dolls. Um, most of the people that we cover on this podcast have mentioned the New York dolls as one of their uh, influences. I think they said that just to get on the podcast. Oh, you're probably right about that. We wouldn't have talked about <laughs> yeah, they them They saw 30 years in the future. Um, I, I don't know much about their other albums, but to say they weren't influenced by the Beatles makes yeah. me want to quietly slip out of the room and laugh. No, 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 no. They're, they're, they were ob- absolutely influenced well, by the Beatles. Well, he even said that it, one of the things that uh, Andy Partridge got the... He had the nickname Rocky because, yes, because because he was a he somehow mastered the song Rocky Raccoon by the Beatles, which never needed to be recorded. <laughs> well, um, I got a couple of questions for you, Tony. Yeah, this band did not start out as XTC. That extraordinarily clever name came later. I know. they went through a bunch of they different, went through a bunch of names. Do you know what they were called, Doug? Well. Star Park. Okay, I didn't know that. They spent some time at Star Park, which I think is an easy name to walk away from. And then they were named the Helium Kids. Oh, oh I did yeah, hear that. Kids, I did hear yeah. that. And uh, but, as a guy, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time in Amarillo, Texas, which is the helium capital of the, the world. world. Yeah. So uh, that sticks with you. It really does. Um, well, well, when they, I, I sort of started at the point where they became XTC and fiddled around early with a band name called Dukes of Stratosphere and then yeah. decided to ditch that only to resurrect it later. <laughs> but, uh, but at the time of their cementing the XTC name, uh, which as JM mentioned was, uh, named after a Jimmy Durant or, or influenced by a Jimmy Durante movie. Yeah. Um, they were a five piece and, and three of the guys in the band 
Uh, Andy Partridge, who, as JM mentioned, was influenced by the Monkees to pick up his guitar. Uh, Colin Moulding, who played bass, and Terry Chambers were drum. Those are the three guys that kind of go through the band up to a point. Yeah. Uh, jo- John Perkins was on keyboards, and this guy named Steve Hutchins was a vocalist as well. They leave fairly early, um, and uh, and then they hire another keyboardist named Barry Andrews, who's on their first two albums um, for Virgin when they get signed for Virgin. Yeah. Um, he leaves after their first U.S. tour, and then they get Dave Gregory, and that's where things kind of cement. Yeah. Because Dave Gregory is... Kind of, he, all these guys are immensely talented, but Dave Gregory brings a dimension to the band. He can write uh, scores. He's a, a great guitarist. He can play yeah. keyboards. He kind of brings an extra dimension to the band that they didn't have prior to that. And now, they were they now, were. I'm the, sorry, what what albums was he on? Dave Gregory was on Drums um, and Wires. That is first. Dr- Drums and Wires was his first one. It was called Drums and Wires because of the emphasis of removing kind of the keyboardy sound and being more focused on guitars hence the wires so that was his first album and then he was in the band all the way up until um none such he was on the none such album which was 92 He left before Apple Venus Volume One, which yeah. was late '90s. Yeah, that's um, when they became a just a duo. Duo, yeah. They actually had known him. Randy Partridge had seen him. He was kind of known as a guitar slinger around town. Yeah. He played at uh, like uh, at youth rallies and stuff, or, yeah. or at church rallies. And he would be the like he'd be doing all these folk songs. But Andy Partridge said he had an ability to sound like Jimi Hendrix. He saw well, and, and the reason I emphasized him is because I think he is not when you've got pe- you've got talents like Andy Partridge and Colin Mulling in the band. People don't talk about Dave Gregory the way they should and yeah. what he brought to the band. And he brought a lot to the band. And in particular, this album would not be this album if it weren't for him yeah. on a whole slew a of reasons. Stuff, yeah, a whole slew of reasons, not least of which is convincing them to go with the producer they went with. Yeah, a, a couple of things important to, to mention is that um, when when uh, when Dave Gregory enters the band, another thing happens, which is Colin Moulding starts getting a little tired of their eccentric sensibilities yeah. and starts to write more straightforward pop songs. And as a result, his songs, while he is always the songwriter with the least number of songs in an album, his songs start to become the singles, and they start to chart which gives a, a, a kind of a running theme throughout the XTC story is Andy Partridge's ego and how fragile it seems to be for a guy <laughs> as talented as he is. It's, it's remarkable. Well, yeah. they lost their drummer uh, before this record because of that. Uh, a very important thing happens to them um, where uh, Andy Partridge gets um, decides he can't tour anymore. He yeah. can't play live. Yeah, and, some sort of breakdown that's never really. I've heard it stage fright. I've heard he's just well Valium the, or well his over- wife his wife flushed all his pills. He was on Valium. He's addicted to Valium. She flushed all his pills down the toilet, and so most of the band thought he was just tired and irritable because of that. But he he had a couple of incidents. One was they were going to be on a live broadcast in Paris, and he walked off in the middle of his first song and got on a plane and flew home. Yeah. Um, and, 
And then he also, uh, they tried after that, they tried to tour the U S and I think he did one or two shows and stopped doing that. He, he actually had to get, give the promoter in the U S a doctor's note. So the guy wouldn't, he says, wouldn't break his legs, but they were in a financial dire straits because of that. They owed all of oh, these yeah. promoters lots of money. And they had very poor management. That's one of the reasons why they're not is probably as big in the United States as they, as they could be. But he actually, going through all this, he kind of took a page from the Beatles. Right. He actually started saying, well, I'm going to start writing music that cannot be reproduced and, on stage. And that's what I was going to talk about. You're, you hit the nail on the head. So he starts getting really studio savvy and starting to do things and and not and creating music with very little space on it. There's like lots of... You know, if I can do it in the studio, I can. It became very anal about it, very mm -hmm. meticulous about it, and that is what turned. Um, that's what turned Terry Chambers off. He's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to play these fancy drum licks you're telling me to play. I just yeah. want to. Plus, he'd gotten married to a woman in Australia. He moved her up to to Swindon, and she'd hated it. And he's like, okay, I'm done. So yeah. he leaves. So they start getting a. From that point forward, they get studio drummers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes drum machines, but mostly studio drummers or uh, session drummers and stuff to come in and play on them. And this album that we're talking yeah. about tonight, Skylarking, is no different. But yeah, they uh, the, he starts to become the studio wizard. But because they're not touring, people stop really paying attention to them. They put out a couple of albums that are critically thought of as being pretty good. Yeah. But the the label wasn't supporting them. They weren't touring, and they the albums die somehow during all this turmoil. The band hooks up with their old producer for their first couple albums, John Leakey, and convinces the label to let them spend 5,000 pounds to go into the studio and record a Dukes of Stratosphere psychedelic <laughs> EP that outsells more than their last XTC album in yeah. the U.S. It's released on April 1st, April Fool's Day, and it's it outsells their last XTC and they, album. But, the, but they, they couch it as this is a lost album from the 60s yeah different band they had different pseudonyms band had, yeah. the band was not the same i mean dudes the, dudes seriously i download my tunes <laughs> so when you say something like ep i don't know what you're talking about it's an extended play it's not quite a long player it's got it's usually i think this one has like six songs max and there was something four. going on at this period of time where people were doing eps all the time yeah really especially alternative, alternative alternative bands were doing that a lot yeah but yeah. but the reason I bring up the Dukes is because that is the band that kind of starts them unpacking this sound that we get on Skylarking this this the sixties yeah. psychedelia. And and, and, right. and at the same time, two other sort of epic things happen to the band to kind of push them in the direction they're going to go and embrace for most of the rest of their career. Andy Partridge hears his first Beach Boys album in its entirety, Smiley Smile. Oh, I and, knew it. And uh, <laughs> it's all over this record. And, uh, and, it is. And Colin Moulding discovers Piper's at the Gates of Dawn, which yeah, is the first yeah. Sid Barrett Pink Floyd album. I mean, and you, so, <laughs> you don't even need to read that to know that happened. <laughs> so, well, you know, it, it's not like Andy Partridge didn't know who the Beach Boys were. It's a funny story. He, Dave Gregory's driving them to London. They're going to talk to the label. The three of them are in the car, and he's playing Smiley Smile on the on the on the album. 
I mean, on the car ride, and it's at a very low volume. Uh, and they're having a conversation, and Andy Partridge is just hearing snippets of it. And and it, because of the low volume, he's he's talking about how otherworldly it sounds, and how and it sounds like it's pieced together in a weird way. And it had this imprint on his brain where he's like, "This is what I want to do." Anyway, so they make this album as or this EP as the uh, as the Dukes of Stratosphere, and it's just a psychedelic like masterpiece. It is. It is it's it's unbelievable. It, it really is very. It does sound like it came yeah. from the nineteen sixties psychedelic movement, down to the phasing, down to the use of here's that word again, or here's that instrument again, mellotron, mellotron. Yeah. The, and, he, and Dave Gregory gets to show off his oh, yeah. keyboard skills. Oh, you get to drink now. The uh, the uh, the EPs the EP that they put out was called Twenty Five O'clock, and it's a bit of a show your influences on your sleeves thing. Uh-huh. But but what, why this is important is because Andy Partridge is on record as saying that when they went into the studio to do Skylarking, they let the Dukes of the Stratosphere out into the open. Like they weren't hiding behind them anymore. And it's important because they really, after this with oranges and lemons, none such, everything after this has that stamp on it. They're just embracing that, that, you know, mid to late sixties English pop. They just are. They're under the gun. Virgin is wanting a hit album. They said, you got to sell 70 units, 70,000 units. units. And then they say something really odd to them. Very, very odd. Which is. You need to find an American producer. Why? Because we're the best USA. No. Oh, no. <laughs> because they sound too British. Yeah. That is the oddest That's thing. Oddest I mean, freaking, because of all the stuff going on. No odd offense. To Tony. Well, no, no offense. This album sounds very British. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, the whole album is it's about. It's hard not to sound uh, Britisher. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of funny. They get an American producer to produce the most British album they make. And so. What they do is they give XTC a list. Yeah, they two lists, but the first list they don't recognize. They don't, anybody re- they don't recognize it. anybody <laughs> yeah. on it, and so the the second list has one guy that they do recognize on it, and the only person that's really familiar with their work is Dave Gregory, right? Uh, and the producer is the, the guy on the list is. Todd Rundgren. We're not ever going to get away. We're from not going to get. Yeah, he's he's basically you know. I I need to clarify something for our listeners out there since I'm their their favorite commentator. Um, I know nothing about XTC except the name and the way the guys sing like that. Oh, 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 oh thing <laughs> that got me to quit listening to music during the eighties. Um, my my question to you guys is, as a guy who knows nothing about XTC, what did Todd Rundgren do to this album that you can't hear on the other albums? Well, we that's a tough... I asked tough questions, damn it. This is a 60 minutes um, of music. I, I, think, I think that any one thing... I mean, he did some things that they were never... that they were not used to. Um, well, when, may- when this album came out, uh, Andy uh, Partridge was furious. He hated the sound he made. 
Um, well, yeah, I think he was, hated the original version of it. He did with the hum in it. Or but, the but but what but what I want to say, what I'm trying to say is that that um, he did something that shocked all of them at at one point that we'll talk about in a minute. But what what I what I found interesting when I was listening to this album and reading about it and doing everything else is that there are little things he did throughout through each each song he did something that honestly taken in pieces Andy Partridge has nothing but great things to say about I know, yeah it's when taken in a whole and I think it's the way Todd Rundgren treated the band I think it's the way he dismissed some of the stuff yeah. I think it's this the way he does where he's he does a lot of people he turns off a lot of people he, he does works he, with. not a lot of people want to do a second album with Todd no, Rundgren as they producer. don't and yeah. I think I think all of that has some so to, to, that doesn't really answer your question what did he do differently other than he he, this album is a is more almost I want to say almost more than any album we've talked about, and I say that a, a lot oddly enough, but I, I really mean it with this album is something you put on and you listen to it from beginning to end, well, and I think the reason that is is because of Todd. Him. Well, well, you know, he's the one that did the sequencing where he discovered well, not, a theme. Not only did he sequence it. Here's how. So the story. Okay, it's let's shock, first. It's shocking to be honest. With you. Let's first talk a little bit about Todd Rundgren's history. He started off playing in a band called the Naz. He hated the way that the Naz album sounded. He always thought that was why they didn't uh, become a bigger hit. Now what kind of music was the Naz? Power pop, I guess you could say. It was. It was, it was kind of blue eyes. It was in yeah. the spectrum. Yeah, it's in the. Uh, it's almost like Holland Notes. I would put it kind of. What years are we talking about? We're talking about the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, then he uh, started working with the band. He was the engineer on one of the the Stage Fright album with the band. The band hated his guts. Hate band hated his guts because yeah, that's such a weird combo. It I know doesn't match at all. Doesn't match. But he built what was known as an outstanding studio. And uh, so is this the one in Woodstock? Woodstock, New York, yeah. Bearsville, Bearsville Studio, and he started making his own albums. He did it all by himself. He he was usually the sole musician on uh, on a lot of his early albums. As big as an ass as, as this guy is said to be, he is incredibly <laughs> talented. talented. He's I a mean, wizard, a true star. He can is. play every damn instrument really well, and yeah. he's got a uh, he's got an ear for things. See, and he is a fantastic engineer. He really is a just even his his own albums. If you listen, so one of the albums that was the Dave Gregory the like the, the most seasoned musician of the bunch was familiar with was something, anything. Right. Which and has he, two pretty big hits on two it. Two pretty big hits on it. Which, and which, it's, it's a great album.
I know we mentioned this earlier, but the the he, the debut by the Dolls, the New York Dolls. Mm-hmm. He, he oh, that's well. right, and that's, that's, that's right. Very, that's very very important on this album. That's yeah. one of the reasons they picked him. Is yeah, he, they were reminded that he had produced one well, of their records. Yeah. yeah, Dave Gregory wanted him. The other two guys were a little lukewarm, and then Dave Gregory said, "You know, Andy, he did that first <laughs> Dolls album." He's like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> all right, we're, 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 yeah. okay." By all. Uh, accounts he took the job very seriously and he thought he was going to kind of whoop this band into shape and he was working for the record company and yeah. not the band not for the band <laughs> and he even said just give me a flat fee i'm going to 150,000 $150,000 and um he said that's everything that's yeah. that's the instruments that's the the mixer with me i mean $150,000 in 1986 really i mean he thought he was going to get this done pretty quick it, it wasn't like he didn't know this band he is on record as saying he not only knew them he was a fan of theirs he'd seen them live yeah and, he, and andy parker didn't even know they'd seen him like yeah yeah <laughs> they get one of the top producers in the whole country and one of the most um hard-headed producers in the world to work with one of the most hard-headed uh guys <laughs> in the world andy partridge who's the uh Guitar player, lead singer, and songwriter. Main songwriter. Main songwriter. I mean, that guy sings and writes songs too, but 20. Colin Maldine is kind of like uh, the. Daryl, uh, the John Oates of All and Oates. Well, but he writes hits. Yeah. He does write hits. He does write hits. Virgin and Geffen. Geffen was the distributor in the United in the States US, yeah. for the for the album. Um, they got excited that Todd Rundgren was going to produce because he has a reputation of being a big time taskmaster and he also because he does discharge a flat fee he's known for putting albums out under budget in in a very short period of time amazing what happens when the budget becomes your budget (laughs) so he uh so one of the stories was one of my favorite stories the album was recorded in the sequence that you hear it oh yeah it it wasn't recorded and put together it wasn't recorded and put together he bought Three reels of tape. Yeah. The album was done. There's not even a space he, between. Well, he had he had the band come in and play it so he could space out exactly what, before they even started recording anything. Yeah. He's like, okay, you guys play this through. Bam, this is how much tape we need. <laughs> I mean, now, how weird is that? that but, is, and, but, and he recorded it, and that was the basis for the whole album yes well, but, and, but, and they didn't they never even rehearsed it is what i heard well the, the, well they had they made demos of some of the songs and stuff but yeah as a band they hadn't well, rehearsed it that's the that's the part of this whole story that i find the most fascinating is todd rundgren sat down with um and he sent over 30 demos yeah he yeah. sat down with that and he says you have a concept album here yeah and he didn't nobody knew so <laughs> He makes a concept album out of the demos. Now, uh, we will it's talk like Stanley, about... Something like Stanley Kubrick does, because he, I, yeah. I hear that Stanley Kubrick makes his... Uh, he doesn't want an editor touching his stuff. So I, that's basically what Todd Rundgren did. Well, he he and, fixed it so it could not be edited. And another important point here, just for people who may be not that familiar with XTC, they had already done two concept albums. English settlement and, yeah. and and the Big Express were both Express. based on concept. Which is, I, I can see the I can see it in Big but they Express. They knew it. Yeah. yeah. No, they this knew time it. they yeah. did. No, they know didn't it. know it. And not and only did he, not I'm only not, one of the things I'm most interested in talking about is is it really a concept album? Did he really pull it off? Is is it uh, <laughs> what he says? Well, 
Yeah. I think that I think that'll be something we can determine at the end. But the yeah. other thing, the other sort of smack in the face is not only did he say, "Here's the songs we're going to do. Here's the order we're going to do them in. Here's what the album's about." But I also have a title for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they didn't keep the title. They didn't he keep had, the title, but, but he had a title. Yeah. But he also had a cover, which was a picture of two tickets, train tickets or something. I mean, he had everything. He had everything. Out. Yeah. Um, and guess who did not like that? Andy Partridge. <laughs> and the reason why is because he was essentially the the people who produced their albums prior to this were there to do his bidding. So when we're the band is. Colin Molding, bass, Andy Partridge, guitar, Dave Gregory uh, doing some excellent guitar work. Keyboards. And then he plays a bunch of keyboards, and he actually found a Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah. That was being eaten by rats. No, it had dead mice in it. Dead actually, mice in it, yeah. In the basement of, the, of, of Rundgren's, Rundgren's studio. Rundgren's, so the, the okay. Chamberlain is the precursor. Dun, dun, dun. To what, Doug? Time to drink. <laughs> The Mellotron. That's right. So he actually plays Chamberlain throughout this, and you can hear it in a lot of of the songs. And the other, the <laughs> the last member of this, and we probably should talk. We'll talk about this at the end. I think is a guy named Prairie Prince. Yeah, he was and their drummer for he was, this album. He was the drummer for this album, and he is uh, originally a member of the the Tubes. But uh, he actually plays on some like psychedelic furs albums, and he's he's an amazing drummer. And I think w- they give all sorts of props to Prairie Prince. And then just one, the other guy who's kind of spattered throughout this album is Mingo Mingo Lewis, who is a percussionist yeah. for I think Santana and a couple other people. Um, yeah, we're talking about the keyboards. Uh, this is one of the first albums that actually had a Fairlight CMI ah, yes. on it. Yeah. which uh, reduces a lot of the percussion sounds. And so the Fairlight CMI, we probably won't be talking about it much on this podcast. It's a, it's basically a computer that can make just about any sound in the world. Yeah, it, it, I and mean, we'll talk about it about t- on tonight's podcast because it's all over this, but yeah. not maybe not. Yeah, not in the future because yeah. it kind of got displaced, but it's... Um, it's it basically requires two people to work. Uh, Herbie Hancock was probably the the first person to really make use of it on uh, Rocket. It was Todd's new toy, evidently. He had just gotten it and was sequencing everything through it that he could. (laughs) How about side one? Uh, Side one opens with what I call a morning song, which starts out with a lot of ambient noises and uh, eventually works its way into a song. (laughs) Uh, What's this song about? Well, Summer's Cauldron. Drowning here in Summer's Cauldron. Under mats of flower lava Please don't pull me out This is how I would want to go And the ambient noise is rhythmic chirping and tweets of birds. There's a there's a bee that buzzes from your left side to the right side at one point, which is funny because Andy Partridge says uh, in an interview, he goes, 
I don't think we had a stereo B. I think it was a mono B that we had to pan. <laughs> so, and then, um, so, and, and it should have gone the other way. Yeah. And to show how much Todd Rundgren had his fingers all over this album, the first instrument you actually hear is Todd Rundgren playing a melodica. Melodica, which is what? Explain what that is. James. A melodica is a keyboard instrument that you actually blow into. It's a very small instrument. The keys are very small, but it's it's like a uh, eighteen key instrument, and it's uh, yeah, it it. And you look really stupid. Yeah, well, you, you look kind of stupid playing and, it. And the funny thing about him playing it is the one time that the band says they got to bully him. So they're up in the control room. He's playing the melodica, and uh, and he said, and Andy says it's great, it's perfect. But we get lean into into the uh, intercom and say, "I'm sorry, that wasn't good enough. Can you do it again?" So he's like, oh, and he does it again, and they do that to him a couple of times when he was doing fine, just to get you know, just to get him. Well, but it does got some weird sounds in it that are that are pretty interesting, and I I really do like the way that when. Prairie Prince comes in on those drums. Yeah, that just kind of all right. This is a this is well, interesting. This this song seems to be about uh, mourning. Yeah, and not much else. But I think for the purpose of the album, it's supposed to represent childhood or a beginning of life. Well, yeah, it's it's based on a poem that Andy Partridge wrote called um, "Duh." It's called "Drowning in in Summer's, Summer's Cauldron." Cauldron. Summer's Cauldron yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was, ba- it was based on that. And then he thought, oh, this will, these, these lyrics would make a great song. So he starts working on a song. Yeah. Um, the uh, the funny thing about this is how it bleeds into the next song. That's, it is. That's not the funny thing. That's my favorite part of the album. I, I do well, like the way it's, that it's... It, like, funny because of how it happened. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. Tell well, me, as, as happen? JM talked about, they played this album in it, in order... So they were trying when when Todd Rundgren was saying they're not going to record something and splice. They're not doing that. They're like, okay, then what do we do? And he said, well, when you get to the end of Summer Calder, just mute your strings, and then get into the and then kick into the next song. So that's what they did. Well, it works. Yeah, it does. And but it, I I am a sucker for songs that bleed into the next song, and yeah. this is one of the best uh, combos I've ever heard in my life. So. Yeah. I've got a question for you guys about the song is grass um, that it bleeds into. I've got a question for you guys about that. That was the first single off of this album. Does grass exactly. sound like a single to you? I would say it's the fourth uh, most single-sounding album song on the album. Yeah, it's a it's a weird choice. It's it, such it's so wonderful. Though. It's uh well, and he had heard those strings, Colin Molding. It's a Colin Molding song, and he had heard those strings and guitars playing together in his head. He came up with the with the uh, chord progression by messing around with uh, with an open tuning. Yeah, and playing some sort of like, he was playing something. Yeah, thunderclap movement, something in the air. He was yeah, it, yeah it as an open E tuning, I think, and he just said these chords popped out, um, and a lot of people think it's about pot but it's not no yeah it, it's just about i, I don't know how you can say it's not about pot it sounds like uh it's about we, fooling around it's like van morrison behind the stadium yeah and it's also about what we did on grass i 
I think it's about both. It's not though. It's about it's it's about yeah. If you fancy, we can get an ice cream cone and all that. It's just a it's it's, it's a nice bucolic kind of yeah. It's well, I think that pot it's, people think they can smoke pot and be it's, bucolic. It's based on a on a particular place in the outside the countryside, a Swin, Swindon countryside called, and I'm going to screw this up, but Cote, Cote Water, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, ladies and gentlemen, one of your hosts is on record saying it's about both activities involving grass. <laughs> and well, I they like are on record as saying, saying it is yeah, not. Saying it isn't. Well, and, yeah. and, and, and I don't this care. Is, well, I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> but it's really... The Diamonds in about LSD. But one of the things that, that, that pecks a cut, this, this is the first album, the 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 first song where the strings start coming in and doing that really cool pixicata kind of stuff. You know what that is, though? That's that's Dave Gregory playing the Fairfield. Is that right? Yeah. Or your Fairlight? Or Fairlight, I mean, wow. yeah. Yeah, he's, he's playing that. He's That picking sound is is actually oh, him really? playing the Fairlight. I did not. Yeah, or Fairfield, wow. I'm sorry. Fairlight. Fairlight, okay, sorry. So And then, the, the, and I love the way that it goes back to the beginning of, of the, Summer's Cauldron. Summer's Cauldron. Yeah. And it's like, okay, these were two... Yeah, very very cool. And then weird, it, it bleeds into the next song, which is meeting the place. meeting place. And that one does the rhythm, the rhythmic uh, track, but it's industrial this time. It's on the, it's also on the Fairlight. It's a, it's like steam hammers, lathes, and they're all put. It into almost this. sounds like a locomotive yeah. coming in on right. the well, beginning of that. Don't you think there's a reason for that? Well, I know why it's there. Well, tell us. That's your job, Tony. <laughs> well, because it was based on his, is loosely based on his him and uh, Colin Moulding. It's also another Colin Moulding song about him and his wife, and she she worked at a factory, and they used to meet outside of the factory when they were teenagers, and that's exactly what the song's about. Yeah, we talked about when the whistle blows, it's time to go, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like this song. I, I I found out I like Colin's songs. Uh, this is a pretty sophisticated song. He usually writes the poppier songs yeah. that are just more. Well, Andy Partridge has said that he thinks this is when he was at his when Colin Moulding was at his peak. I mean, he really this prowess. is it's like almost um, three songs in one. Yeah, it? no, it's it's uh he's and, and what's what's really funny about this is when you know when uh, the label told him that he was going to get this producer and and Todd Rundgren says this is what we're doing no guff from you. And then Todd Grunt, then he looks at the list of the songs, and every one of Colin Moulding's songs is picked. Yeah. He's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So he, he was feeling a little on edge to begin with because of that. But his songs are fantastic on this Oh, album. yeah, and then that, that, uh, that um, break between each verse and uh, chorus, where he's got that, that cool um, bell-like sound thing the, that's going through. The, the thing I like about this song is it's got this this thing that XTC does in their songs, that I the songs I really like, which is that um, at the end of the chorus, when he sings The Meeting Place, and it goes, the vocals kind of go up and down. They do that a lot, and I love that. I just love when they do that. Their vocals are amazing. I did not do them justice. If you you hear isolated vocals from XTC, they're more impressive uh, than... They are when they're with instruments. Uh, you, I, I think the instruments, uh, not that the instruments are bad, but you just can't hear. And, and that's not uncommon. It's the same is true with the Beach Boys. When you hear a good, when you hear a really good band uh, singing harmony 
and you you remove the uh, the other instruments, you can tell yeah, how good they how actually good these are. Guys so, are. And that's these guys fall in that category. And not many bands do actually. A lot of bands sound. Um, that's a, just a hurricane happening here, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. It's not <laughs> There's, jam. Um, it's microphone. I, I have a hard time hearing the bass on this record, but I heard it in isolation, and it's. Um, I, I, I meant to ask. He's JM. a fantastic bass player. He, he is a in the pocket and out of the pocket he uh, is. drummer. I mean, bass player. And I was wondering where you were with him. And I'm, I'm sure he's one of my. Him. He is one of my favorite bass players. Uh, and he's he is he's he's is in the pocket. He knows when to stay in the pocket. He knows when to uh, actually he gets out and starts playing melodies. Yeah, when he starts playing melody, he does a very good job of that on this album. I think. Well, so. um, he definitely has the talent to uh, step out if he wants to. That's yeah. No question about that. And then we have this song that's really super. That's me. Supergirl. Who wrote this one? Andy Partridge. Andy Partridge. No, it's obvious, isn't it? This, this song, to me, sounds the most XTCE of any song on this album. And and that's not a bad thing for me, but it's got that... you know, and, uh, and you, you've It's looked, like they wanted to write an XTC song. Well, it's got that weird... A Andy Partridge does this thing from time to time where he's got this weird kind of staccato singing style where it's real choppy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then it's got odd instrumentation, mm -hmm. but at the same time it's it's like an earworm. It mm -hmm. gets in your ear and it's catchy. Um, it's it's right on the edge. His songs a lot of times are right on the edge of it, just classifying it as pop. It's something not quite what that is. Yeah. Um, but he can write, as we'll talk about later, he can write fantastic, straightforward pop songs too. Um, but uh, it, the, uh, the 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 kind of interesting thing about this song is when he wrote it. Uh, he was worried about it sounding too loungy. God. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, oddly enough. So he wanted to he wanted to, to toughen it up with this Beatlesque kind of snare sound. Yeah. And so he told this is one of those things where he's where Rundgren did what he wanted. So he's like, I want this certain sound, this Beatles sound. And Rundgren goes, Well, here, does this work? And he pulled out a multi-track tape from his library, put it on the reel, solos the snare track on the Fairlight and says like this. And Andy's like, yeah, what is that? And he's like, oh, that's uh, that's the master from Utopia's Face the Music. So the <laughs> snare on this song is from Face the Music by Utopia. Uh, is that yeah, right? Yeah. Utopia. Uh, what's the significance of the band Utopia? Uh, I'm sorry. I guess I should say that. That was one of Todd Rundgren's bands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Deface the Music, uh, Utopia, which was Todd Rundgren's. Uh, I'm, I'm sure all the other guys in the band had a lot of input. Well, and can you imagine being? Can you imagine? They did write songs. They all did sing. That is in Utopia. In Utopia. But yeah. can you can you imagine uh, being Prairie Prince and having to p play play around a snare that's being sampled in the yeah, song? You're yeah. not hitting the snare. The snare is already in the track. Well, and then there's the, yeah, the well, way. But it starts off with that electronic, per, that weird electronic yeah. percussion that comes is, in. Is on it, it correct that all these? Drum tracks were put down after the album was recorded. They uh, were. Yeah. That's I, a big thing. That big yeah. thing. Probably not that. That was probably done because uh, they were they did some of it in Woodstock and they did some of it in... in um, Most of it was in San Francisco. In San Francisco. Well, yeah. the, the rhythm tracks were definitely in San Francisco because that's where the drummer was. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the rhythm tracks were mostly done with uh, the Fairlight 
and drum machines, but they took most of that out. Out. Okay. Um, well, the bass was not put on until they yeah, were in San Francisco. He, he said that he wouldn't. Colin Bolding yeah, said, yeah, Colin he wouldn't play said I wouldn't play. I won't until, play with a drum or without yeah, a drummer. The other interesting thing about this is that uh, uh, Dave Gregory's solo on this song is played played on a guitar that my favorite owned. You guys want to talk about that? You probably know more about it than I do. Well, you know, uh, some people usually play Stratocasters, but in this instant. Eric Clapton played a oh, yeah, Gibson he... SG. The name of the guitar is The Fool. Yeah. It was owned by Todd Rundgren at the time, and uh, David Gregory played uh, the solo with that guitar, which is really fascinating. But <laughs> wouldn't any other SG sound the same? So I Probably. Probably. And it was also, uh, uh, just a call back to a, a past podcast, it was plugged in through a Tom Schultz rock band pedal when he was playing it. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I only have one thing to add to this uh, song, and that is, if the fast-forward button hadn't been invented before this song came out, I think it would have been because of this song. You're crazy. I can't stand I think it, it is the silliest song on the album. It's definitely not I, my favorite. I, I really don't know what the hell it has to do with anything else that's going well, on on this, well, but I do think it's, it's a good song. It's working its way up to the breakup that we need for the next uh, two songs. Well, he uh, when Andy wrote it, he didn't like it after he wrote it. He initially well, he thought was it was right. going to be a good single, then he didn't like yeah. it, and Rundgren convinced him to do it and put it on the yeah. album. Yeah. That's on Rundgren, then. I love this song. I don't know what you're talking about. I If, if you ask me to think of a song by a talented band that I like less I would be hard pressed. Oh my goodness! That, that's really super, like. super girl. It's, 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 I just see a little smug punk thinking he's so clever, and I, I can just, see that. I just cannot. This song cannot end fast enough for uh, me. So it does, and then comes a ballet for a rainy day. This is one of my favorites on the album. It is just that weird chord progression, uh, the descant vocals that are on it. And then there's that really cool part in the middle of it where it's got that old timing kind of uh-huh. piano thing on it. It's just this this song is just so complex. It's like almost like a little mini symphony. It's almost like somebody uh, that experimented with acid in a huge um, <laughs> in a huge uh, '60s band, uh, but it puts you. It kind of puts you in the afternoon. It's like a, it, you're in a parlor. Well, it well, does. It it, does it, and it, on a Sunday not, afternoon, I, I hear uh, I hear Smile and uh, mm-hmm. Beach Boys. Um, I can see that. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to get away from them. Obviously. Yeah, no, it's yeah. well. That's because it's in, it's injected into the DNA of the album, but yeah. Um, I think it's 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 funny. Andy Andy Partridge talks about what the rain meant to his mom, and how he's like, "Oh, yeah. it was always about her hairdo getting ruined." And then yeah. there's a line in this called "Watch new hairdos crumble as scenery sunlight shifts away." Yeah. So it's you know it's about that, but also the imagery is so so colorful and flowery for such a song about such a drab subject like it yeah. raining, you know? Yeah. No, and it does the same thing that the first two songs do. It bleeds into the next song. Which you almost can't believe it's not the same song. Thousand umbrellas upturned Couldn't catch all the rain that drained out of 
Till I floated downstream to a town they call They're both about rain. Yeah, you know, they well, they it's about sell rain, it. but one's like it's yeah. raining, and the next and one the it's next like it's sunny. About so we're talking about a thousand umbrellas. God, I, it is, I, I feel like I made it through. Um, I made it through uh, Supergirl, and now I'm here with this one, and I'm just going, oh God, please. Were you dropped on your head as a child? <laughs> This song is amazing. Yeah, it's, you are crazy. I I don't get it. I mean... This is Dave Gregory's coup de grace. It is, this, absolutely. It, this, he, he did these string so arrangements on it. This, so song, this song is... Uh, the it's, thing it's I thought about listening to it is it's, it's, um, oh, man. it's XTC's Elgin Rigby. It is. Well, not yeah. only I that, mean, but yeah. it's almost like it's like a Bartok piece in the middle of it. it, I mean, it, it is so derivative of Ellen Rigby. No, well, but it's the, not the, derivative at all. The only der- thing derivative about it is it's strings and vocals. Uh, it's strings and vocals and, and an acoustic and guitar no, at one point. He had but, no idea about Ellen Rigby. Heard it years later after. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like Ellen Rigby. It doesn't. Rigby. It, is, it sounds like someone who just heard Ellen Rigby. Oh. The, 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 I think it's a, I think it's, I do think it's the same setup as Eleanor Rigsby, which was an octet. I think this is an octet that they did on on this song. But the strange uh, discordant chords that are coming to that band is making is just... Which um, Gregory said when he first heard it, when Andy Partridge played it, it was just him and acoustic guitar. He's like, what does he want me to do to make this miserable (laughs) sounding song sound sound any better uh, and the way that it ends is just incredible I, and I, this he, is to me this is one of the most incredible no, songs i think the ending is a highlight actually and he and yeah. he and, and greg and he and he sequenced it on a rolling sequencer is what he did because he would right? go andy would go over to his house they talk about what he wanted he'd say how's this he's like no do this and so the whole time they're like moving back and forth when they finally got it he sequenced he then wrote out the the musical parts for the um how you do that, that. It's just yeah and then they go in the studio and do it there's a funny side story where there was one of the musicians was evidently very large and every time she would get up to get a cup of tea or something she'd knock the music stands over every time <laughs> um but no i i like this song a oh, lot I love, um, this is probably my favorite song on the album unbelievable well doug you'll love this uh rundgren hated it until he heard the strings and when he heard the demo he didn't want on the album then he heard what gregory uh, dave gregory did and he's like you know what this goes on the album. Well, darling, don't you ever stop to wonder about the clouds, about the hail and thunder, about the baby and its own miracle. Who's pushing the pedals on the season cycle? I, I would say this is one of my favorites. And uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is a uh, song that that makes sense to most people i think yeah this was this was the song that was directly inspired by smiley smile this is a song it's where andy, be, andy yeah. partridge said i've got to make a i've got to do my beach boy song but oddly enough he also says about this so he's he's walking he's it's it, it came to him when he's walking his dog in, in, in an old manner <laughs> the the song did lyrics did and then musically it was it was inspired by um smiley smile but he also said that uh, he believed at the time when he wrote it that it was he was abs- he was finally able to stand something up now this is an ego we're talking about Andy Partridge finally able to stand something up to Ray Davies 
drums come in and it, they sort of get rid of all the reverb and all that yeah. stuff. That, that's that's well, pretty I, remarkable. I like this song, but I'd recommend he say that to someone said to me. Yeah, but and, it starts off with that cool kind of calliope oh, sound. Oh, I love it. Like, I love everything about this song. Yeah, and he uh, the other things he does to add Beach Boysy things. He said he that purposely doo-doo. put put the word darling in it because they'd say darling a lot. And then in the middle eighth, there's an anvil in it, which is very Beach yeah, Boysy. Yeah. And of course the the backing vocals and they're I think they're credited on the album as the Beach Avenue Boys. Yeah, back, backing singles on it. Um, and then yeah, Dave. Gregory's organ playing in this song is so great. It's sort of meant to celebrate this changing of the season. Oh, it, just, it almost sounds um, like uh, do, 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 do. And, and then of course uh, Rundgren, you know, being the person that you know, Andy Partridge said his biggest issue with Rundgren was that he was he was just really bitingly sarcastic and unpleasant to him all the time. Yeah, and, and Brits w- don't get into sarcasm quite the way. That- all right, and the one thing on this song was the way he says umbilical. To rhyme with cycle, he says um bell um I can't can I say this like um bill lackle or something cycle um to, and it rhymes with cycle. Um, my favorite thing that Andy Partridge said a quote about uh, Todd Rundgren is he says he had the people skills of of Herman Goering. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, Herman Gehring was a very persuasive person. He probably would reconsider that now. No, that's, that's probably. <laughs> Anyway, this is this is uh, this song and the first song and the second side are my two favorite songs on this album. I love I love this song so much. Yeah, um, it it just it hits me every place. And then it's I just it's just how it goes into that weird part in the middle of it, where, with all the doo 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 vocals. Oh yeah. That are just, well, I'm uh, glad that Tony and I see eye to eye on at least one thing on this record. Yeah. Now we're going to flip this record over to to side left, and uh, <laughs> we have a power pop song, Tony. We- Yeah, I think this is the most rocking. It's got the distorted guitars. It's got the a big, busy bass line. It's got that sitar sounding thing that's going through. It has through. a uh, universal theme that people that people will actually be able to tell what this song's about when they hear it. Which is about worried about making ends meet. He's and got then, a family. Yeah. He's trying to. It's autobiographical too. He just had a kid. He's, yeah. he's worried about. And the band is uh, had two flops. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. to speak, and he's worried about that. And they're under yeah. the gun. They're under the gun. Company. So um, we've gone from childhood to adolescence to yeah. early adulthood, and now we're in the. This is Todd Rundgren's sequencing that makes this all make sense. But yeah. now, now we're in this part where adults are uh, worrying about stuff. Yeah, and it's uh, Rundgren. Uh, the, the part I, I'm guessing it's that that sort of. Uh, well, the what he says to Gre- Dave Gregory in it when he's trying to figure out a lick, he goes, "Come on, man, you got to play one of those melodies that every kid wants to learn how to play. You can <laughs> do it." He's like encouraging, you know. So, um, like I said, the, I think taken in pieces, the if you if if Andy Partridge is able to step back and look at all the stuff Rundgren did outside of the general, I'm going to take over your role. Um, yeah. He's and I think he has mellowed to where he he agrees that that guy's influence on this album was. I, I think it shows some remarkable uh, insight when he talks about I can take hurtful comments from the boss 
for the oh sake, no I, for the th- sake thank of you my for mentioning that yeah I think you, that sounds like an adult thing yeah yeah that, not that's, a rock star thing yeah that the the, uh, the song says that that this guy and that and and in in fact when he was working at the paint store the song's based on that guy was really abusive to him but oh, it is, yeah <laughs> it is funny that those lines are in this song and this song is on an album where the boss that's is going abusive on to him. yeah yeah <laughs> I think it's one of the most Beatles songs. Yeah, on it, and it almost sounds like "Ticket to Ride." It, 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 oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's that end where they do the three. They break down to the three four yeah. part for this, like the last four bars, and that's straight out of "Ticket to Ride." This is also the song where Colin Molding quit. He quit because he was laying his bass down, and he thought it was too bluesy. He yeah. couldn't do it again, he and he got, got in a big argument with it. And yeah. uh, supposedly, he told uh, <laughs> he's, he told Andy to use his erectum as a bass case and stormed out the studio. <laughs> <laughs> if you're faced with this song and Grass as your choice for first single, which one do you pick? <laughs> uh, this one. Uh, you, you know the thing that makes uh, Grass is appealing, but it's the it's the link with the previous song that provides a lot of the appeal, especially yeah. we have two voices. And when right. the voices change, I, I find that appealing. I can't tell you why. A yeah. lot of people who were aware of this band thinks this was a single and it was never released as one because mm-hmm. it's so popular with fans of the, of the band. Oh, it's well, such a, I mean, you, you can like imagine grass being played versus this song being played at a live. I, I would jump all over this song. Oh, yeah. Or just driving down the street. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Windows down. Mm-hmm. Turned up. Yeah. So we're, we're struggling with adulthood, and we make it to the next song, Big Day. It's your big day. Your big day. This is a Colin Molding, which is another another song that I like uh, more than fifty percent of the others, and uh, it's about marriage. Yeah, it's about a dad talking to his son. And uh, this is to me, this is if this album had somehow wound up on Magical Mystery Tour, yeah. it, it the album I, I would not have been surprised because it does sound like they took well, something. It's funny you say that, JM, because it was actually, um, it was written for the Big Express, but he wasn't comfortable or quite uh, confident enough to Is do it. Right? So he brought it to the 25 o'clock uh, Dukes of the Stratosphere. Yeah. He was, they were good. He was good, wanted to put it on the Dukes of the Stratosphere uh, EP, and Andy convinced him. He said, no, it's too good for this. You need to put it on the next XTC huh. album. Well, it's... I think Todd Rundgren might have done some good work on it. It's got that bullhorn vocal yeah. thing going on. It's got the phasing uh, at the beginning of it where you got the vocals kind of going from left to right and in your, if you're wearing headphones. This is another song that Andy thought should have been a single. He even designed a, 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 a sleeve for it with a guy yeah. in, a, in a tuxedo with a bag on his head. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got that, and there's an, uh, you mentioned, an anvil getting struck earlier. Uh-huh. There's an anvil. It's got to be, I guess that's a fair light that's making the anvil Probably. sound. But um, yeah. yeah. Dave Gregory is a fine guitar player, but his keyboard work is exceptional on this album. 
And it's one that he, I think he did a really good job on. Yep. Another satellite. Aren't you You guys know what the song is about? No. Well, it's his uh, his girlfriend, his mistress. Well, supposed mistress. Erica I don't Wex- think they oh, ever. That, Wex- yeah. I don't think they ever did much until he got his divorce from his wife. He's now you married to, to you her. You have to do mm-hmm. something to be but, a mistress. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she was. She That's whenever right. they were, she was an American, and whenever they were in the U.S., she would show up everywhere. So he wrote this song as a kind of hey back off this you're she would write him letters and send them to him he's like you're you're ruining yeah. you're you're you got to back off my marriage is at stake here don't uh, need so another satellite. He only needed yeah. one satellite, like the Earth. <laughs> right. Uh, not, not like Mars. Rundgren hated this song and didn't want it on the album. I thought it, well, whatever they, they I guess they polished this turd because it was, a, it is very spacey. This it does sound. So this was the song that, um, and we'll get to it, when Dear God was in the original listing, that was pulled and this song was put on there. And the reason why is Andy really wanted it, and the uh, the executive at Virgin, Jeremy Lascales, or however you say his name, who was their rep, also mm-hmm. loved the song and said, that needs to be on this album. So Rundgren lost that battle. I do and, like the song. And they pulled Dear God off of the album initially and stuck it on the B-side for grass. Um, it's like everybody wanted to get Dear God off this album some way. Do you guys know who uh, Dennis Fano is? Or Fano? No. He's a gu- guitar maker. Uh, he loved the song so much. He made a he made a bunch of guitars that he called satellites. Huh. But the funny thing about that is this guitar on this particular song is actually sampled. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That's uh, one of the pitfalls of this time, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Sampling drums, was... sampling guitars. Yeah. At least they didn't have auto tuning yet. Yeah. The man who sailed around his soul. Jam, tell me about the man who sailed around his soul. Well, this is a uh, surprising song. Uh, it. it it's beatnik. It's kind of jazzy. It's got the bongos. It's got your finger snaps, and it's got your flute. It's like something you would hear in a coffee house in France. Beatnik spy it. music is what Andy calls it. Yep, it does. It sounds like James Bond music. And then it goes, yeah. Then it goes into something in it, like a hippie movie from the '60s. I would say, like, yeah, you could see almost a James Bond sort of deal, or uh, you know, like. Hey, we're, we we want to make a Steve the, McQueen movie without Steve McQueen, where the where the color isn't that sure of itself. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, all everybody in the studio was auditioned to do the finger snaps, including right? Rundgren, and they all failed except for Colin Moulding. He's the one that could snap his fingers. <laughs> so my guess is obviously like a lot of stuff on this album, they sampled it. And yeah, it put fingers. it in the fair light and made it like an orchestra of. Um, it, it, it almost it's it, it's there's parts that. 
almost sound like Austin Powers to me. Yeah. But it, it's almost tongue well, in cheek, but it is well, done. It's Austin so Powers well. trying to sound like what this is. Trying and it's to also sound like. it's also the way Andy Partridge sings on it. He croons this in a way he doesn't croon anything right. else on That's the album. That's right. Yeah. So Mingo Lewis is the guy I mentioned earlier. He's the one playing bongos on this, but he wouldn't play unless he got stoned. <laughs> And Andy says he got so stoned that he probably went through enough dope to put the entire island of Jamaica to sleep. That's how much <laughs> dope was being smoked when he played on the song. Um, and the bongos are all over it. Oh, the bongos um, are all over it. And it's just, the drumming is really great. Too. Drumming's out of this world. Yeah. And uh, the he's got the brass section that comes in. You got those weird string section that comes in. You know what the song is uh, modeled after? Nature Boy. Nature Boy by Nat, Nat King Nat Cole. Cole. There was a boy A very strange enchanted boy They say he wandered very far Very far over land and sea and you can hear it if you, you listen. Really to, can. If you listen to Nature Boy and listen to the song back to back, there's there's de- you can definitely hear that. Yeah, these guys wear their um, influences, influences on their sleeve. Yeah, they do. Well, yeah. they they don't hide it at all, and uh, they're to their credit, they admit it. It was it was originally a folk song until yeah. Rundgren wrote the brass arrangement for it. And that's when it turned into, as Andy says, a cross between Mac the Knife and Lena Horn's Fever. This song almost went on, I mean, this album almost went unheard until this particular jewel found its way onto uh, college radio in Florida. All right. So this is where the album kind of becomes Dear confusing. God. Dear God. This is, uh, we started with uh, childhood. We went through uh, adolescence, then to adulthood, and now we're at death. And we have Dear God. This was a song that was, I think it was just kind of done in isolation. It was not meant to be on the original album. And it was released as a, uh, as a single. It was a B-side, it was a B-side, B-side to, to grass. To gra- it was a B-side to grass and became popular. Because DJs decided to be hip and flip it over. Yeah. And so, uh, cause controversy. Yeah. And it, and it did. Uh, I think the BBC banned it. They banned point. it. They banned it. And then certain record stores wouldn't sell it. Cause this, once they did finally release it as a single, the sleeve had a crucified hand with a pen going through it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's based on this series of children's books where kids write letters to God and the book's called dear God. And a- Andy thought that was, uh, a little much, but he liked the title. He actually doesn't. He didn't like this song that much. He felt like he was tackling something way too big for a three and a half minute pop song, and didn't want to put it on the album. Felt like he failed. Um, 
I will say this has never been one of my favorite XTC songs. Ever. This is this was a song that I became familiar with, um, and I didn't really, to be honest with you, I just kind of just oh yeah, there's some new wave guys trying to be talk about God, and I, I just really didn't think much about it, and then. It was put on the album in the U.S. because they wanted it became kind of a popular single. But at the same time, but U.S. stations were playing it, and they were there were people boycotting those stations. Well, and I think there was even a bomb threat. Firebomb. The the one in Florida got threatened to firebomb. Um. Yeah, and it was Rundgren's idea to put the girl singing. The first verse and the last verse, and it was a friend of his, or he knew them. It was some musical family. Yeah, nobody knows who actually. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I guess Runger knew the woman, but yeah, or the girl. It was a girl, and she had, to, and and they he made everyone in the band leave while she was performing because he said, you know, we wanted a good performance. She doesn't need a bunch of British weirdos staring at her while <laughs> she's singing. So, um, I. Uh, it doesn't really. There's. It, it's. Uh, it, it's a controversy does, that did not really need to happen. Well, I think everything pushing this song to be a hit and a single is based on that and that alone, because I don't think it's that great of a song. Everyone's, the, you know, Rundgren said, oh, this is the hit. You need this. And someone else said it. And I think that's because he knew that you put this out as a single and it's going to, it's yeah. going to get, it's going to get attention, but not for the reasons of it being, a song worthy of that outside of just what the subject matter was. And again, I, you know, I respect Andy, Andy Partridge for saying that he, what he was trying to do didn't work because it's too big of a subject for a song like this. Although, you know, they did end up, it did send, save their career. They did end up making a pretty boring video, um, <laughs> with it. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, thankfully I knew this band before this song. Otherwise yeah, I would have been, I would have been turned off. <laughs> It's about a guy. It's an agnostic asking why things are happening. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very. Direct. It's not philosophical. No. It's not theological. No. It's not. There's no nothing sophisticated about anything about this song. The some of the music is a little. No, I was going to say lyrically, there's not. But I will say musically, I, I, I Colin's playing a fretless bass, which is cool. Dave Gregory has some pretty nifty arpeggios in the yeah. throughout the song that really add add a layer to it. And then Prairie um, Prince does some amazing. Drum well, he's parts. got this weird kind of that uh, that rolling thing he does yeah. when he hits. I don't know what that is. I don't know what Sarah, the hell he's doing. It's like yeah. a military sounding marching beat almost. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's all interesting, but it's lyrically kind of boring to me. Vocally, it's boring to me. I just don't. I've never. I've never liked the song. Yeah, and. uh you know, it's one of those things that I think, like I said, it saved their career. I'm not sure they feel that great about it because no. there's other songs they probably would have rather ha hang their hat on than this one. Yeah. You know. The thing that makes me most sad about this song is that believers were upset by such a hackneyed <laughs> tune yeah. covering all the same boring topics that a college sophomore that has smoked too much dope talks about well i wouldn't uh, even go that far i think it's a so college or a uh, high school sophomore <laughs> it's just um 
I, I, I mean, how many times have I heard atheists who are pissed off at the God they don't believe in? It's just, it's, it's silly and it's, it's tiresome. And uh, anyway. So um, let's talk about the album or, or the song that it replaced. <laughs> which it is replaced uh, Mermaid, Mermaid, Smiled. Mermaid Smiled. This is a very short song. Um, it's done primarily on a 12 string acoustic. Yeah. Um, it's, and um, it's, it's got a xylophone in it. That's a that's vibraphone. A vibraphone. Yeah, a vibraphone, yeah. muted trumpets, bongos, a tabla, all of it going through the Fairlight. <laughs> um, Pretty interesting. Nice. It's, it's like I said, it's a very short song. I think this would have fit much better than Dear God. My well, personal opinion. I, I think um, I I I I like the song significantly better, but I think in terms of what. Doug was talking about in the theme. Uh, That's why Dear God Dear God makes more sense if you're talking about now the end right, of the yeah. cycle. All right. I, I believe Dear God's a man on his deathbed making sure that... Well, know. originally it was done. The last, Dear God was originally done as the last song on the album. At least the album, that I, the, the version that I heard. Yeah, I, I think they added it on. I think it was... When, when Andy talks about it, he says it was... He thought it was sequenced right where Mermaid Smile was supposed to be, which would have been between another satellite and the man who's sailed around his soul. Um, so I don't know. Who knows? This album's been through so many different iterations. Yeah. Well, the last, yeah. yeah. I, I'm still struggling with the idea that this actually is a concept. I, I think it might be a forced concept. I, well, I think you're right about that, Doug. Except when we get to the next song. Okay, Jim, how about dying? listened to this song today i was like what makes this song interesting to me and i think i figured it out the percussion sounds like a clock oh that's going that's through the whole song and it it is about i don't like saying all the stuff i don't want to die like you but at first i was like oh he's bitter he's saying all this stuff like no i don't necessarily want to I don't know what my death is going to be like. I want to just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm counting my, like, okay, I'm in my fifties now and I am kind of going through that. Yeah. Like, yeah, I've got who, my last, yeah, I'm going through my last, how do I want to live these last few years that I have? Um, party. It's yeah. Party. Um, I, that's an interesting take because the song is based on this neighbor that Colin Moulding had um, outside. Yeah. He bought this house called Dolphin Manor, and there it's on the <laughs> Wilshire um, Wilshire countryside. And he befriended this guy named Birdie, 
who I think lived next door or managed the land next door. And he was this older gentleman who'd lost his wife. And there was just all this sadness around him. Yeah. And so that's what inspired the song. The set, it's not about necessarily about his death because he didn't die. He, he died in an, in an old folks home later on. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think it's about Colin's dad, but it's not, it's just yeah. about this idea of the set, the sadness around this kind of lonely old guy thinking about those things. You know, yeah, and it, um, I mean, I really do think it's a a excellent song, and I didn't realize it until I was like, "What makes it? Why does this song resonate with me?" And I, I think that, I mean, if you're talking about if you're looking at the day as a sequence of life, this um, this is also the song that uh, in that inspired the Chamberlain to get fixed up because. Yeah. Colin, Colin wanted a bass clarinet on, yeah, on the song, and he's like, "Runner's like, well, I've got something sort of like that in this Chamberlain down in my basement, but I don't think it works." <laughs> so Dave Gregory went down there and opened it up. It's all the dead mice and mouse crap in it. He's like, "God, let's see if we can clean this up," and he was able to get the thing to work. Clean Sacrific- it up. Sacrificial bonfire. song about good overcoming evil <laughs> in one way yeah. it's uh it's also ba- based on the countryside these where where Colin lived there were all these sort of um uh i don't know like uh not like pagan monuments and stuff you know uh-huh. ancient monuments yeah, yeah. and so he re- he wanted to write this uh this sort of pagan sounding song and what i mean by that is like the tune uh about the about an iron age ritual um and he was real happy with the way the demo sounded. He said he would prefer he would have just not preferred it, but he would have been happy if the if the song ended up the way. Oh, it but I heard was. that when Rundgren That's added what, yeah. those that string those string parts to it, he had no idea. He had no idea until Rundgren did that that the song could be the way it is. Oh, it is a fabulous send off. And then the other funny thing was Rundgren wanted to have like tapping sticks to be part of the 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 pagan sounding stuff and he couldn't yeah. he, they tried sticks that didn't work so he found a bunch of old chinese fourth of july fireworks and so so um colin molding and and uh and uh andy partridge are smacking those um those fireworks together to get that sound and then the cellophane actually on the fireworks you listen because i'm sure you guys listen on the headphones there's a part in the song where it sounds like fire crackling yeah that's yeah. the cellophane yeah from, yeah i was wondering the, what was burning yeah, there the cellophane is that from right those fireworks in cool. fact uh if you look on i think on the liner notes colin is listed as playing uh playing the bonfire <laughs> playing bonfire yeah. yeah it's because he's crackling the cellophane in the it's a it's a really good way to end an album that's as pastoral as this one i think it's yeah a, it's uh, I mean, you again. It's like, is it a, about a day? Is it an album about life? I, is it about? I think about the pondering. Con- I think the concept fits the first side much better than the second side, and I actually think the first side's a stronger side than the second side too. But I think I think that it yeah, you know, like a lot of concepts, Doug, the, it loses steam after a while. Yeah, you know, there's very few that maintain through the whole album, and there's. There's quite a few that seem like they were almost forced to be uh, concept albums. Yeah. I don't think this one seems forced to me. To me, it, it seems very loose, and you well, can take it as a concept, 
But I, I think but the you, way you can rest assured that the people who wrote the songs didn't know they were writing a country. No, right. no, no. But and I do. I don't think we've touched on that before. Yeah. Uh, and I do think, though, um, if anything, the one thing this does have going for it is the album has a general feel from beginning to end. It yeah. does. If it doesn't have a theme, it's cohesive. Yeah, the feel is definitely cohesive. Um, and I think that's you got to give Rundgren the credit for that. That they have not done anything like that before or since. I mean, even well, this is this is not my favorite album of theirs. But this is the most highly regarded. It, it is, it is. It? But none, I can't decide if it is. I, none, none such, such is my favorite. None XTC such may be my favorite, just song wise. But if if we talk about the critics, we're back in the same territory we were with the Pretenders, where yeah. almost every reviewer gives it the highest. Uh, I, well, I think it. I think it kind of took them by surprise. Yeah, and um, it takes me by surprise. Uh, I'm. I'm infinitely intrigued i'm less intrigued by an album that's fantastic and i understand why it's fantastic right. this album everybody is impressed by it and i don't understand so that makes me uh i'm just looking at the reviews here rolling stone five record collector five uh uncut nine out of ten mojo five uh chicago tribune four out of four all music guide. Five. You know, you know what I think might be part of that. If you think about when this album came out and the way it sounds and what it what it represents, it really did. It just came out of it's nowhere. It's so different than yeah, we anything read some else. of the some of the things. And that I think were there, was, there was kind of a Sergeant Pepper's was about to hit their 20th uh, anniversary, yeah, yeah. and I think there was kind of a nostalgia thing that was well, going on. Yeah, there. it explains why there's psychedelic albums that because the Dukes put out yeah, another album do. after this called Sonic Sunspot, spelled with a PS on both words, which is kind of funny, and that sold really well too. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's just funny. And when this when this album was released, Andy Partridge, to his the, to, almost to the detriment of the band and the album, just went on a press junket, just trashing it. Anytime he talk about it, he I don't, it. I, yeah, he's probably not the most stable guy in the world. But well, there's uh, we talked a, a lot tonight about who influenced this album, but I think it's pretty important to talk about the influence XTC had on other bands, and it's enormous. In fact, uh, a guy like me who doesn't like this kind of music <laughs> can hear their influence and all the other bands I don't like. And uh, like who? Well, you tell me who, 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 I mean, I think one of the things that they did do is, um, okay. Yola Tango. I can kind of see some, but even, even bands closer to their time were profoundly influenced. Well, because they were kind of the first band that said, let's investigate these, all these digital synthesizers are coming out. Let's, let's find these old school, instruments these old school um they were also doing something that tony mentioned is they're grabbing um all kinds of music and bringing it together it's in, it's nearly impossible to categorize these guys because they're bringing so many influences together and 
They're, they're playing in so many different genres. Well, and we, we talked about that before we started, how much press and how much time is devoted. There's a podcast devoted strictly to XTC. There's an there's a website called Chalk Hills that has just archival, tons of archival stuff about the band. For a band that wasn't that, that didn't sell all that much, they were a huge college band, but their their fans are rabid. All right, well, uh, guys, I got to tell you, that's the hardest I've worked since we started this deal. I was looking at all those reviews, and I said... If you just keep plugging away, you're going to discover what you don't know now. And I, I plugged away, and it kept getting further from me instead of closer to me. So I don't know. No. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead. Uh, we, we do two reviews on this show. One is um, critically what we think, and the other is personally what we think uh, with with. Uh, once with our mind and once with our heart. Uh, critically, I'm going to go four or five because I'm able to understand what these guys are doing. I understand uh, they're not, they're, they do follow the Beatles and the Beach Boys and some other influences, but they're doing it in a very new way. Everything is extremely original. Uh, Quite clearly, Andy uh, Partridge has no toleration for uh, anything that's uh, warmed over. He, he wants to do something new, and uh, the band has great musicians. So I'm going to go four or five with, uh, with the music and uh, a critical uh, review. Uh, personally, I give it a, a three. Um, there's nothing for me in this. Uh, I don't relate to anything they're talking about. I don't know how they so perfectly purge it of everything relating to blues and rock and roll that I love. But <laughs> I, you expect that with the Tony pick. A um, little bit of a surprise on a JM pick. Well, I've always felt he was the uh, he was the calming influence between the two of us. He's yeah. the I'm the lukewarm water. That's right. He's the yeah. lukewarm water. Exactly. So there's He's, no no drop fives in any of this album, and. Uh, but I I can respect what's going on without liking it. Uh, their the topics of most of their songs are meaningless to me, and uh, I, I I've never heard so many metaphors extended beyond their life uh, than, than in this this album. But uh, you know I'm the lyrics guy, and uh, a lot of people don't give a damn about that, and I understand that. And I I think there's some peace that can be found in that, but I have never found it. Tony, uh, I think you like this album. Yeah, I like this album a lot. Um, I do think there are some. I do think there are some things in it that don't make it a, a great album critically in terms of a five. Like I said, I mentioned briefly earlier. I think the first side is very, very strong. I think the second side is less so. Um, I, if you include "Dear God" on it, that's a bit of a knock for me. Not again. Not necessarily for the hackneyed lyrics i just don't like the song very much i think it's i don't think it's that great of a song no um so uh i critically i like your four or five i think that's probably spot on for this um this album there are x it's funny because we were going to do an xtc album earlier 
but I changed my mind and we ended up doing the Elvis Costello album instead. But I'm glad we I'm glad Thank we you. did this one first because I think this uh, I think this was the right one to do XTC on so thank you jam for that um in terms of whether or not this is album i'll listen to (laughs) again uh i give it a 4.9 uh yeah this is this hits me in all my sweet spots a couple of songs in particular just you know i I just i don't i don't want it to end and they're they're short yeah um i i love this band a lot um I, this it's funny. The first album of theirs I bought was actually one of the one of the uh, Dukes of Stratosphere albums. Twelve um, o'clock. No, I bought I bought I bought Sonic Sunspot after this, and then uh, Oranges and Lemons came out, and then I got this one, and then I just was like, oh my god, where has this band been my whole life? So yeah, I I, I dig this band a lot. So thanks for thanks for uh, doing this one, Jam. Matt, um, Jam. Okay. I think that you picked this album, so I'm going to suspect that you like it. I very much like this album. Um, As a critic, I'm going to give it a 4.8. I don't really know if there's anything wrong with it other than sometimes the lyrics are a little bit... um, I don't know. I I think they could have spent some more time trying to uh, make something more by profound. your own admission. You're, yeah. you would but I'm be not much a, more interested in the production and the yeah. music and the, yes. the, the people playing than yeah. the lyrics. Um, personally, I'm going to give it a probably a five because there is very few albums that I just have heard before that just made me. Just I didn't I had no idea albums existed like this. I thought that there was like the uh, it sounds like updated Beatles to me, and I, I there's some updated Sgt. Pepper's for me, and Sgt. Pepper's is probably my favorite album of all time. Sonically, very interesting to me. I'm a huge Todd Rundgren fan. I love almost everything he puts his his fingers on. Um, I, when I heard it, I did not realize that he was the producer of it, and I just went, "Wow, this sounds really cool." So I don't know. I, I I'm just it's one of my favorite albums of all time. I put it in my top five favorite albums ever. Huh. So, well, I'm profoundly fascinated by this record because of what JM said. Because on most things, JM and I uh, go parallel. So uh, I'm going to do what I've learned to do since we started doing this podcast, and that's to revisit it in four weeks. And uh, there's something strange that happens. It has some time to maturate in your uh, imagination. And when you return to it again, you uh, hear hear things that you didn't know the first time. Tony? Hey, Doug. What are the kids listening to these days? Well, uh, I'm going to laugh at you saying the kids because I'm going to be recommending an album that came out although it came out in 2017 i struggled with what i was going to do because i was like okay i I always like to have some sort of tie to the album we're talking to so what and i had two or three albums popped in my head if i hadn't already recommended a pugwash album i probably would have gone with them they're an irish pop band but this album all of a sudden came to me today and i realized this was the perfect album to recommend on tonight's podcast and that is good times exclamation point by the monkeys. 
was released in 2017. Now, the reason I'm recommending it is I doubt we would ever talk about that album. Um, <laughs> but it was yeah. it was in celebration of their 50th anniversary, and they kind of went back to their old formula. All the Most of the songs, not all the songs, most of the songs were written by other people. But they're written by people who are were big power pop stars of the day so actually adam schlesinger produced it he was the guy from the songwriter for fountains of wayne he wrote one of the songs um jam's favorite rivers cuomo wrote one of the songs the guy from weezer um noel gallagher and paul weller wrote a song together on it that was that's called yeah it's called birth of an accidental hipster and that was the single on it and then andy partridge wrote a song on this album called you bring the summer that is fan- it is a fantastic power pop song anybody who hears me say recommend a monkey's album goes uh give it a chance because yeah. the monkeys oh, are responsible for some of the best music ever recorded they whether they wrote writers, it or not they had <laughs> yeah. great writers and a great well, band and they here, had rogers of rogers and hammerstein here, here's stuff. here's the thing i will say about the monkeys that i don't get people give them crap all the time for that no one gives elvis crap that guy didn't write a single thing he sung <laughs> nobody gave the um everly brothers crap and their biggest hits weren't written by them so why do the yeah. monkeys get it because they were some fabricated well, they were on a horrible television show. Uh, it was perfect it was, for the time it was funny but yeah. um no it was it was horrible but that's not that's not important they had great songwriters song and they writer. got a great band and they had their input was voices and they had right. good voices. Well, and Mickey so, Dolan's so is everybody on, else shut up. Mickey Dolan's is on his top. He's still on his top form on this album. As old as a guy he is. Um, there's a song on here that um, is is um, sung by Davy Jones. It was recorded before he died. Uh, uh, fittingly enough, it's a Neil Diamond song because Neil Diamond wrote one of the Monkeys' biggest hits. I just yeah. it again. It's it's a fantastic album. I remember telling people about it when I bought it. In 2017, and people would roll their eyes at me, and then they would listen to it and go, "This is the Monkees." It's like, "Yeah, this is the Monkees." Give it a <laughs> shot. It's a fantastic album. Well, Tony, yes, a fantastic recommendation, and uh, we've had a one of our fans. Uh, I'm I'm going through the several hundred emails here, and I see that uh, Larry West really liked the Refreshments album that you recommended. So keep up the good recommendations. All right. Well, JM. You picked a good one tonight. Well, thank you. you. Won't just lead us home. So thanks for listening to us tonight. Next week, we're going to be talking about an album by Towns Van Zant, one of his last albums, At My Window. At my window Watching the sun go Hoping the stars know it's time to shine. Go to our Facebook group. Let us know what album you would like for us to review in an upcoming episode and what you think of previous episodes. We're also on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. And you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. For our host, Doug Cooper. My co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And reminding you, don't drown in summer's cauldron.
tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Pushing pedals on season cycle. Herman Munster. Flattening. Clover. Inset. We have to start over. <coughs> this is the hardest one we've ever done. Insect bomber droning. Boot, insect boot, insect bomber Buddhist droning. Boot, I forgot the Buddhist. I knew there was something missing. All right, y'all ready? Yeah. In five, four, three, two. Stop. Which comes first, bomber or Buddhist? Bomber. Okay. <clears throat> In five, four, three, two. Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Insect Buddhist bomber droning. It's insect bomber Buddhist droning. <laughs> I can do this, I swear. <laughs> bomber comes before Buddhist? Insect bomber Buddhist droning. <laughs> insect bomber Buddhist droning. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> it's the headphones that are screwing me up. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> 